welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Vanessa Watson, and I was really lucky. The timing was fantastic because she's just been promoted to Senior Vice President and Assistant General Counsel for the Consumer Solutions Division at MasterCard. So fantastic news there for Vanessa. She's been at MasterCard for 10 years, but she takes us right back to the beginning where, as a child, she loved to perform and loved to debate, right through to joining a performing arts academy to actually being and performing at the Lincoln Centre for Performing Arts one day, earning what was $10 a day, looking across the road to the Fordham Law School and saying, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to become a lawyer. And that's exactly what she did. It's an absolutely fascinating journey. And she takes us through the challenges she faced as a woman of colour in law, how it shaped her, what she did about it to help make a difference. And let me tell you, she she's done a marvellous job and really moved the needle. It it was a fantastic discussion. Again, Vanessa is one of these people that once you finish speaking to them, you just feel energized and you feel there's lots of good in the world. So as usual, sit back, chillax and enjoy the show. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm very excited about this. And I'm very excited about the news that you have just shared with me that's not public yet, but by the time this show airs, it will be your recent promotion to Senior Vice President and General Counsel for Consumer Solutions at MasterCard. What an outstanding achievement. Congratulations. Tell me more. (laughs) Yes. So I, you know, interviewed for a newly created role at MasterCard and just recently as of Friday was told that I got it. So very excited about that. It's a huge opportunity. I moved from managing a very small team to 30 people. And so it will present a lot of new opportunities for me and a lot of ways to continue to make impact. Fantastic. So launch into the Vanessa Watson story for me a little bit and the journey, how you got to, you know, where you are today, and then perhaps a bit of a deep dive, how you see this new, you know, the new role that you've just been promoted to. So tell me a bit about the story first. Sure. So I'm going to go a little far back in my story because it will help to sort of set the stage as to who I am as an individual. Fantastic. So as a child, (laughs) I really enjoyed the performing arts. So singing, dancing, acting, writing songs, poetry, you name it. I put on full productions for my family. And, you know, in addition to that, I also love to reason and debate. So between those two things, they were either hearing me in the performing arts aspect or I was arguing and negotiating on behalf of the and here, here, comes, I, here comes a lawyer. <laughs> I can just, here comes a lawyer. Yeah. So as I stood there and I was just like, I want to be a movie star when I grow up, my family members would be like, she's going to be a lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> and, so right. and I grew up in Jamaica, West Indies, where the focus was always on academics. 
right? Yeah. So the performing arts wasn't seen as anything other than extracurricular and things that you do on the side. So there was no real investment in yeah. my performing talents. And yeah. so I had to wait until I graduated from high school at 15 before I started really in the performing arts. And that's when I auditioned for a performing arts group in Jamaica and yeah. got in. And that yeah. started my first chapter in performing arts, which I did for six years. And so wow. while I was in that group, I sort of realized that, you know, a lot of people had dance experience or other experience because they'd been doing it for a really long time. And so I enrolled myself into Edna Manley College for the Visual and Performing Arts and studied dance. So I got a diploma in dance education. So that was the end of my first chapter before turning to law. Now, okay, and so I graduated high school at 15. Yes. At 21, I think, that's when you enrolled into the course that you just mentioned. So how old are you now when you finished? No, not not even huh. 21. So I enrolled in that course at 17. At 17, okay. Yes, so 17 to 20. To 20. So it was a three-year yep. uh, program. Yep. That's when I went to Edna Manley College. Okay. So, so you're a full-on performer. Why then law? What, what happened? So I was at Lincoln Center performing yep. to a full audience. I knew that the tickets were around $200 each. We were getting $10 a day for honorarium, as they call it. And so I did the math and I was just like, Someone's taking advantage here. I'm going to go to law school. And it was right across from Fordham Law School where I ended up going. And I said, you know, looks across at Fordham and said, I'm going to go to law school and represent people like myself who are being taken advantage of. And so said, oh, so done. Fantastic. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure if you spoke to my grandmother, she'd be like, I earmarked you as a lawyer. Yeah, uh, uh, like five or three. <laughs> so, so, but I had to get there on my own yep. and I had to take my own journey on my own path. So that's yep. how it started for me. And that's usually the best. Somebody telling you the path, usually I mean, you can always get guidance and mentoring, but in the end, and and sometimes the the wrong path or a longer path, if I can put it that way, is better. I had by myself because it really makes the correct path so much more certain if it takes you a longer a little longer to get there just it makes it a little bit more crystal clear certainly in my case i'm a yeah. firm believer that you can do and be multiple things you yeah. know we ask our kids all the time what do you want to be when you grow up as if it's sort of binary right like yeah. it's it's just going to be this one thing and yeah. and there's it's so much more dynamic right you can be anything multiple things Yep. different things, a series yep. of things in whatever yep. order you choose. Yeah. And so that's kind of the approach that I take with my kids. It's whatever you want to do and in whatever order you want to do it. Don't take a binary view. I like it. I'm not sure it applies to some of us. I love the <laughs> I love the approach. Okay, then early career in law, what was that like for you? Well, I spent many years at law firms, as yep. you may know. So yep. I had to go through the usual stuff the usual in, in law firms, like, you know, big law. I was a summer associate at a big law firm as a 1L. And I so I had an offer from my 1L year. And then I went into my 2L year and I had another offer at another firm. So I had like yep. two offers to decide on. And then I chose the latter of the two and then spent, you know, close to 10 years practicing law at that firm. And 
you know, interestingly, you know, you go through these different experiences in law school where you have choices and opportunities because as a Black woman, I remember after my first semester that there was a writing competition that you could be a part of that would essentially give those who succeeded an opportunity to actually either work for one of these large law firms or, you know, work in, you know, clerk for some, you know, do you have yep. a, you'd have a job and it would yep. pay you something. And so, of course, I took my winter break and I did that. And then, you know, when interview season started in like the following, you know, whatever, January, February, thereabouts, I got an offer completely outside of the program. And I was confused as to yeah. what to do. I remember, <laughs> I remember going into the, you know, whatever office, you know, career prep office, whatever they're calling it, and saying, oh my gosh, I, I'm, you know, I'm a finalist in this program, but I have an offer separately outside of the interview process. What do I do? And they looked at me like, you take the offer. Oh, the, the whole point of the program <laughs> is to do what you're doing, what you did on your own. That's right. You just got there a little early and by, you got there early <laughs> and by yourself. Okay. Exactly. And so I was able to, you know, bless someone else in that process because yep. they told me I could pick whoever I wanted to oh, wow. take my spot. And so I picked my friend. Oh, and wow. she was able to land uh, a position. So you, you know, you you do things and you pass it on and you help someone else along the way. What a fantastic! So that story. was a great experience. And okay. then the first matter, just to circle back, the first yeah. matter that I was assigned to at the law firm after I graduated law school was Mastercard. Believe it or not. Right. Okay. <laughs> and and was that the beginning of a beautiful relationship? <laughs> <laughs> it was the beginning yep. of a priceless relationship. Yep. I, I did not know at the time that I would Cold end up smart. at MasterCard. So yep. at the time I was interested in intellectual property because having a performing arts background, I thought perhaps I would go into yep. entertainment law. But then I started looking into it and talking to people about it. And then it just didn't seem as interesting as I thought based on yep. who I wanted to represent. So I became very interested in intellectual property. So when I went into that law firm, that's what I wanted to do. But I got placed on MasterCard's currency conversion litigation for a number of years. And, you know, look where I am. So serendipity, yep. whatever you want to call it, yep. fate, yep. <laughs> destiny, it, it was just really, you know, helped me to sort of understand the business even more because I had defended MasterCard for so many years in litigation. And what was that decision like to leave the law firm at that point after 10 or so years and join MasterCard? What were what were you thinking, the opportunities? Tell me your, your thought process there. So you have to sort of chart your course and see where things are taking you in life. So I knew very early on in my law firm experience that I didn't want to be partner. First of all, I looked up and I didn't see anyone I wanted to be. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to go in-house. Yep. And so it was just a matter of timing. And I had two beautiful children while I was at the law firm. And I could tell you this, each time that I was interviewing for a position in, in, in a corporation, I then found out I was pregnant both times. Right. And, yep. you know, here's a little tidbit. So the law firms, which, you know, generally, you know, are a little bit behind on some things. Yep. And in the case of maternity leave, they were not. Yep. Yep. They were way ahead of the corporations. I think they were giving like four and a half months, whereas the corporations were three weeks. 
Wow. So I was just like, I'll, I'll hang on yep. Yep. <laughs> have my children. Yep. And so that's what I did. But simultaneously with that, each time I went back, there was a new opportunity for me at work that kept me there. So I yep. started off in a, in a group called trade practices and regulatory law, ended up, they changed it into litigation and regulatory. So I was able to do many different things. And by the time I came back after my second child, the group entirely moved over to corporate. So the, the IP transactional group moved over to corporate and I moved with them. So that was another opportunity and pivotal moment where I had to make a decision. And these were things that I knew would be good for my career in-house. Yep. So it was a part of the strategy. You know, the law firms use you and you use them. Yep. In the early days then at MasterCard, tell me about those. Sure. So at MasterCard, I started off as their first information services council, which means that, you know, at the time it was big data and yep. we were going to utilize the data in an anonymized and aggregated manner to give yep. insights yep. to businesses. And so just given my background and the variety of my background, I was hired in to help do that. And so I did that for a few years before I was promoted to be the North America Region Council for the group Data and Services, it's now called. And then I pivoted from there into a new role, which was my current role, Franchise Public Policy Compliance and New Customer Types, which essentially is like just the core foundational, you know, entryway for all customers into MasterCard from where they enter to where they exit. So right. dealing with everything across the board and just coming up with some really innovative ways to sort of plan and prepare for the next 50 years of MasterCard's future growth. So very strategic, very interesting, very cutting edge stuff. And then the current role that you've just been promoted to, to the extent that you talk about that and to the extent that you've got you've got some thought of, thoughts of uh, what that's going to look like for you and the, and the goals that you'll be setting for yourself there. Can you talk about that? Sure. So I'm going to use an analogy, which which I think really drives it home. And it has to do with a cake. I like cake, by the oh, way. I love cakes. But, yeah, I love cakes. <laughs> so think about a two-tiered cake. I started off in information services or data and services, which is sort of the nice to have, like the icing on the cake, yeah. right? So this is like, it makes the cake sweeter. It, you know, you, you don't need it for the cake, but when yeah. you do add it, it really yeah. adds some real flavor to that. So I started off there. And then the franchise role took me to that base layer, that foundational layer where you need to understand just how everything works, how the pipe works, how everything works in that, you know, in that cake setting. And now this role that I just got is, is at that top level. So these are the consumer products that are built on top of the next, right. whatever the credit, debit, prepaid, acceptance, all of it. So, you know, having now an ability to impact and influence what consumers want and make sure that we're sort of planning and preparing and bringing a diverse perspective to that area. So wonderful opportunity. And I think everything that I've learned up to this point and all the roles that I've been through has sort of pre prepared me for this moment. Well, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity. I'm going to have to get you back here maybe in six months' time to get it, see how you've gone and a little bit more, but that sounds fantastic. Now, Vanessa, MasterCard consistently, I think over the last decade or so, finds itself in the top 10 of the 50 most diverse companies. Now, I know diversity and inclusion is, you know, is very dear to your heart. I'd love to hear a little more about that, your own personal strategies to make a difference, MasterCards, and perhaps some of the challenges that you've had working 
as a woman of color in law? Sure. So I'm going to give credit and shout out to our chief administrative officer, who was formerly our general counsel, Tim Murphy. Tim. When he took shout the role to on... Shout out to Tim. Tim. Yep. <laughs> when he took the role of general counsel about seven years ago, one of the first things that he did was to ask for volunteers across the, at the time it was called LFI, which is Law, Franchise and Integrity. We've now changed because we had a reorg. But he asked for volunteers to lead three different initiatives. One was hiring, retention and training of minorities. The other was supplier diversity, and third was thought leadership. So he was very focused on DNI when he yep. took the role. So I volunteered to be a part of the hiring, retention, and training of minorities, and actually led that group for Fantastic. a year. And then, based on my work, which you know coming out of that was you know a diverse slate for every single hiring, right? Yep. A new, new and different pipelines for talent than, than the places where people generally look to. And some ideas for training. I was asked to then lead the supplier diversity for the second year. So the, I think all of these programs went on for two years. And a part of that exposed me to NAMWOLF. So yep. I was told, we would like you to go to this NAM. I've never heard of NAMWOLF prior to this. We'd like you to go to this NAMWOLF event that's happening and, you know, come back with some information because we're about to sort of converge all of our, our firms into a panel. And so we want to have diverse, you know, focused firms, uh, uh, you know, as a part of that panel. And so I went to NAMWOLF and I was completely blown away. I think I fell in love with the organization immediately yep. because people will hear me say all the time, it's like diversity at its best because it's just everyone. And, you know, because it's, it's, it's diversity is defined so broadly, there's representation of everyone at the, yep. at the end. Everybody just has their heart in the right place and are just rooting for the right things. So for those of you who don't know NAMWOLF, this is National Association for Minority and Women-Owned Law Firms. And so these are some of the people like myself <laughs> who were in law firms and were, you know, being marginalized or not given, you know, adequate work or proper work or the, the sexy assignments, right? Because they prefer to give it to someone who looks like them. So yeah. depending on, you know, what your circumstances were, one way of, of dealing with it is to start your own firm and, you know, to, to create that value and have those opportunities that you didn't get in a law firm. So these are talented lawyers who are trained. A lot of them are trained in big law and have that sort of background and experience that they bring to bear, you know, at, at what some would say more reasonable costs with more personalized service because they, they put their heart and soul into it in addition to the excellent work that they do. So I was very impressed by the caliber of the lawyers that I met. And I came back to MasterCard with, I think, about 20 firms that I thought, you know, we should look at. And out of those 20 firms, six were selected to be a part of our panel, which represented 20% of the panel. Wow. So I was very proud of that. Yep. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's something that I'm passionate about and something that I want to do my little part to make a difference, particularly in the legal department, which are so many, many years behind a lot of different industries when it comes to 
diversity and inclusion. And I think you're actually your co-chair for the Nambulf Advisory Council right now, aren't you? You've taken yes. Well, actually, shout out to Leslie Davis, the CEO of Namwolf. We had Leslie yes. on the show a few episodes ago now. So, okay. and of course, she's a rock star. So, um, <laughs> and, and doing fantastic work. Any particular moments in your career which were, again, as a woman of color, particularly challenging, which really got you to kind of grit your teeth and say, I'm going to make a difference here? Uh, where do you want me to begin? Jim? Oh, okay. <laughs> I feel like there are so many moments right. like that because yep. I ha I'm going to call her an angel because she's no longer with us. But I had a rare opportunity to understand what is happening in rooms where I'm not present, right. what conversations are happening, what emails I'm missing, because this angel who I'm, I'm referring to, she was my office mate in the yep. law firm. And she was a white woman and, you know, she was also in the same group. And so she would say things like, because remember, I told you I wanted to get into intellectual property and the messaging I was getting was, no, we don't have any matters available. So you need to stay on the litigation side. And she would get types of work. And so she would be like, they're looking for more people. Wow. Vanessa. Yeah. You know, why? You know, so she was. The person who told me everything that I was missing out on, that I wasn't getting that, because most of the times you just don't know. You yeah. just think that this is all there is to it and people are being honest and whatever opportunities come, that's all there was. But I really got an inside view from her, from, even from the just little things, little microaggressions, like I passed the bar like everybody else, but my name was left off the email and I was left off the email congratulating everyone. So she was on that email. She raised her hand and her voice and said, why is Vanessa left off? She passed the bar like everybody else, right? Wow. So I had rare insights into that yep. because of Lori, which I wouldn't have had. And, and you know, who knows how many people, you know, yep. don't know, right? You just think that whatever it is that you're served and whatever you're dished is all there is to That's it. That's the case, yeah. But you don't realize how much you don't know based on not being a part of those conversations or in those rooms. So... I had quite a few moments like that. Fortunately for me, I was blessed with a strong sense of self and yeah. confidence and extreme resilience. And so for me, it was never anything that knocked me down that I couldn't get back up from. And so even when I heard no's, I would continue to show up in people's faces and make the argument as to why I should be a part of a particular deal. Vanessa, um, sounds, some people didn't like that, but yeah. I just kept showing up. <laughs> it sounds and feels like to me you're almost you were almost empowered in a sense by it or yes. certainly driven by it and good on you. I mean, that resilience and that, you know, self-empowerment, that's that's the bit that makes the difference. And clearly you've made a, a huge difference to MasterCard. Jim, and, I also you know, have, yeah, yeah, I also have to give you the, the, the other side of that, right? Because yep. there are always two sides to the coin. Yep. Please do. Right? Yep. So they're like, there are two, I guess, pivotal moments for me that I never forgot. And one was when I was in law school. And I was doing a clinic and it was like a child and welfare, family welfare clinic. And I was working with a professor who was a white male on this matter. And one day, just out of the blue, he said to me, Vanessa, you right now, as a third year law student, have everything you need 
to be a partner or a general counsel anywhere you choose. Don't know why wow. he said it, wow. <laughs> but I never forgot that because yeah. he, at that point, as your third year, you're like yeah. learning things and trying to figure things out, said that to me and that stayed with me. And then fast forward to when I was a first year at my law firm, working with a partner who essentially just took me under her wings. Anything she was on, I was on. If she was drafting a speech, I was drafting the speech. A lot of times I said to her one day, I was like, I don't know how to do that. She's like, of course you do. You, you wow. know how to do this. This is why I'm putting so much faith in you because you know, you have everything that you need. And so those two messages yeah. at those pivotal points, when you're starting off new and you're green yeah. and you're not really sure, that just made such a difference for me. And so, you know, you counter the negative with the positive yeah. and I'm an eternal optimist. So yeah. I tend to just discard a lot of negativity and focus on the positive. And when I say this often, but when we have someone else who believes in us more than we believe in ourselves, that and that's someone obviously that you respect and admire, that can that's life changing. And, and clearly, the, the the two occasions that you've mentioned, that's what it sounds like. I mean, they are pivotal, life changing moments. Yes, um, that's why yeah. mentorship and sponsorship are it's so important. Okay. Yeah. And it, you you never know who you need to say a word to. Don't just keep it to yourself. Yeah. Just tell that person they may need to hear it in that moment. They may have been giving up and thinking maybe law is not for me. Yep. You know, maybe I should just give up. But just that word of encouragement yep. is so instrumental. And the beauty about that, I don't know that we really appreciate this. Those words, it's not like you have a limitation on the amount that you can dish out. Sometimes we're sparing, <laughs> but the well is endless. So we need to be, you know, for those of whoever is in that kind of position, recognizing the impact that you can have and that those words at the right time can make and learning that as, you know, as early as you can in your own career so you can impact on others. You know, it's incredibly powerful. Yes, I completely agree. And so, of course, I spend a lot of my time passing that on, a lot of time mentoring different programs. You know, that's like my soft spot. All you have to say is mentor someone. And I'm like, okay, sign me up. (laughs) You know. And where do the challenges around law firm diversity, is it a challenge just at the law firms or, or is the challenge sometimes at the clients too? Here's something that I say, usually firms are excellent at delivering on what clients really demand. And I'm not sure in the past, certainly as, as much as let's say the last 12 months, the clients have really demanded that the law firms improve on diversity. So I suppose my question is, is there some, is there work to do at both ends of that you know, spectrum, the client spectrum and the law firm spectrum? Absolutely. Definitely work to be done on both. I think from my experience, which of course is limited, but from what I've seen, the corporations are further ahead than the law firms, but that doesn't mean, and and I'm just speaking from legal, because even when I talk about MasterCard, there's MasterCard, you know, sort of globally, and then there's MasterCard on the legal department. So I think where law firms and, you know, to some extent, corporations, well, Law firms were ahead of corporations in diverse hiring. I think they start off with a lovely class that's sort of perhaps closely representative of a a population. And then it just completely falls off from there. Whereas in the corporations, there were some corporations where I understand just 
didn't even have the numbers in terms of the diverse hiring, right? So yep. maybe they were a little bit more advanced on that front. But where they both fall off is retention. Yeah. And, you know, as a part of the law firm model, it's designed for people to leave. Of course. They only want, yep. you know, a, a few to remain in a particular yep. class. And so there is no investment for the most part in retention and particularly not for minorities. I think you've seen the statistics that when push comes to shove, when the economy is not doing well, who goes first? It's minorities, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think retention across the board is where both fall short, the corporations as well as the law firms. But the corporations still do, I think, better at retention than the law firms because they don't have that model where they're yep. looking for you to leave. They may not be investing in enough training or providing enough opportunities, but they're not exactly pushing you out or expecting you to leave. It's funny. I, I sometimes, I think myself that the uh, law firm model, might, unless it actually fundamentally changes, it will always have that challenge because the primary goal is not necessarily retention. It's more kind of up and out, isn't it? You're yes. either going to get yes. the client. Yeah. You know, there's retention at a yeah. certain level. I'm not sure if you've got a view on that, whether or not fundamentally the model has to change in order. I think that's why you have disruptors, yeah. right, in, in markets. That's why, yep. you know, you have people who come in and are looking at these pain points, particularly yep. as they relate to corporations and their expectations, right? Yep. So if as a corporation, I expect my law firms to present diversity, like you need to show me someone who is sort of um, your successor, <laughs> you know, yep. that's a minority. Yep. And if you don't have that pipeline because you, you know, all of them have left because of your up and out model, yep. then you're struggling. And then you'll hear stuff like, oh, we can't find anyone or, or yeah. you know, you know, just just excuses for why they don't have diversity at the senior associate or the partner level. They're not able to staff our matters with diverse talent. Right. Just excuses because of the model. So what end up happening in that case, just like we've seen disruptors across, you know, the Ubers and all yep. the fintechs in the, in the in the financial industry. I think there will yeah. be disruptors and NAMWOLF is somewhat of a disruptor. Yeah. I, I was and we call... can actually do a lot more to yeah. disrupt that model yeah. instead of sort of following it so closely, right? So I, I think there's an op a real opportunity for NAMWOLF and other organizations to disrupt that model and give the corporations more of what they need. Yeah, I was actually going to call that out exactly and put NAMWOLF in that category when you mentioned the word disruptors because I think there's a couple of things. One, it's driven by obviously those in the minority that weren't getting the opportunities, but now also driven by the demands from the client side when they're not able to get the kind of supply diversity from the major law firms. So it certainly feels like there, I, won't, I don't know if it's a fundamental shift, but there certainly feels like there's been a significant shift, you know, in the many, many discussions that we have with general counsels, it's the top three priority that, you know, increasing the, the diversity, not only of their teams, but of the, you know, supplier law firms. Yes, absolutely. What's the hardest thing you've ever done, Vanessa? You know, and this is where my teenagers come in. <laughs> oh, let's, let's talk teenagers. I got, I got plenty of stories. Come on. I think raising teenagers has been extremely difficult and challenging for me, particularly a black boy. And some of that 
stress, the gray hairs that you may see, you know, that comes with that. It, as a mother, you want the best for your children. You will give anything for them. And, you know, last year was a really difficult year. Yeah. Seeing what happened with, you know, the social unrest from George Floyd and other killing of Black people. And just knowing that I have a 15-year-old son who, you know, could be subject to any of that any yep. day. Every time he goes out, my heart doesn't rest until he gets home. Yep. So I think that is really challenging for me. And I would say that's the most difficult thing that I'm, I can't even say I've done, but I'm doing, doing. because it's not over. And all I keep praying and hoping for is that nothing happens yeah. and all this worry was for naught yeah. and that, you know, both of my children end up living long, healthy and productive lives. And the characteristics, I mean, what is it that you'd like your children in their 20s, 30s and so forth? What are the characteristics that you're hoping they'll, that will endure with them? So I'm hoping they will be people of integrity. Yeah that care about social issues, that care about the most vulnerable within our society, that work towards making their immediate environment and society a better place than they found it, that they will speak up and intervene and have courage in situations that are really difficult, that they will give back and bring someone along with them, that they'll always help those who are needy or, 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 you know, just in need of help, that they'll always have empathy and that they will remember all of these core values in everything that they do. Yeah. Resilience. You talk about resilience. resilience. Yes. That they'll be able to bounce back because there will be so many obstacles. It's so important, right? Particularly as a person of color to be resilient because the challenges are numerous. And if you aren't able to bounce back, you'll find yourself flailing. Yep. And so the ability to find strength in those opportunities where someone has been digging a hole for you or someone has been trying to hold you back or tear you down and just finding the opportunities and the strength in those moments, once you get over that obstacle, you will realize each and every time that this is not even something that no, you should you have can, worried about. You can do anything. And Vanessa, what do you do on a day-to-day basis to, to try and ensure those kind of characteristics do exist in your children? What are the strategies? So my children will tell you that, you know, I, I relate to them like adults. Yep. I don't treat them like children in the sense that, you know, I bring real life situation to their circumstances. And so when they're talking about my friend did this, or this is the worst day of my life, or whatever the case may be that teenagers do, I just bring perspective to them and say, do you know how fortunate you are? Do you know how many people don't even have the ability to have a friend? Like I'll just, I really keep it real with them. Yep. And I'll give them examples from my life and my upbringing and some of the things I had to go through. They'll tell me I'm from the ancient times. Um, but, you know, I, I continue to share that. I make it a point of my duty to take them out to help feed the homeless, pack food for others in need. And so they're doing that kind of community service and seeing, you know, that inaction. 
social justice. We went on marches last year after peaceful protests, I should say. And so they get to experience what it is through demonstration each and every day and have practical real life examples of what it is that I'm trying to teach. And I reinforce it over and over. The other day, I was just having a conversation with my daughter and she was cracking up because she was like, mom, you have so many sayings. (laughs) And she was like reciting them back to me of the things that I would say. And most of them had to do with resilience. Yep about bouncing back, about coming, you know, so so she just, she just kept uh, rattling them off. And I thought it was funny because I'm like, I actually, I'm getting through (laughs) because if those are playing in your head like that, then, you know, it's not all in vain because they will play at some point when they really need it. And so that's the hope that if I keep doing that, that something will land. There's a few things there, Vanessa, that really resonate with me. And certainly I have learned that the one about treating them as adults and not speaking to them as children, I think that's key. That's something which I kind of wish I'd realized a little bit earlier, but bringing them into the conversation, not actually sheltering them, even if there are things that you feel they might not be quite ready for yet, but just being able to hear the issue, being able to see how you and your partner actually resolve really difficult issues and just being in the room and listening. That instinct to protect children from things you think they're not ready for, I'm not sure is a great instinct because that, I just think that makes a huge difference because they see how you resolve problems. They see that what challenges are, they might not understand entirely, but they remember. So so that that's certainly one thing. And the other thing is I think, you know, you might feel like you're nagging, but it does actually come through in the end. I was just going to share one of my favorite quotes, which I actually came across as a teenager myself. Yeah. And I loved it so much that it has stayed with me and it sort of feeds into how I raise my kids. I don't remember who the author is, but the it goes... Your children are not your own. They are sons and daughters of life longing for itself. And so I loved it for myself and I love it and I try to live it with my kids. So I'm teaching them to be independent, real life world citizens that really care about people and are able to overcome obstacles through life. Well, Vanessa, I'm pretty confident your children probably don't know how lucky they are right now, but I'm also pretty confident that those apples aren't going to fall too far from the tree. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute blast speaking to you. I've had a great time. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.